I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word, uh, again back to the Gospels. Uh, this morning, our text is Matthew chapter 1. This text can be found uh, on page 807 of your Pew Bible or just the first page of the New Testament. Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series in the Gospel according to Matthew. I've been uh, preaching at this church for five and a half years now. We have yet to go through a gospel, at least in the mornings. I preached John's gospel about five years ago at the evening service. So we are overdue to study one of the gospels together. Uh, Instead of waiting till the new year to start a new series, I figured uh, why not jump in with uh, the narrative of the birth of Jesus right before Christmas. And so we ended Genesis last week. Uh, We are beginning Uh, Matthew this week. We're beginning in a unique place uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, I just was reading over these names uh, during uh, the offertory because I don't think I can do this. Uh, Read 40 some names uh, to you this morning. Uh, If you want to hear a song based on these names, singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson has written a song in which he sings these 17 verses. Uh, I put it on our Facebook group page something with our church on Friday. So go back and listen to that. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing that he can sing through all of these names. We're not going to skip the genealogy of Jesus. There's a reason that Matthew begins his gospel with a list of names. In fact, there's a reason that the New Testament itself begins with a boring list of names. And we're going to see why Uh, in our sermon this morning. For now, uh, let us turn to it. Let us see what God's word says to us this morning. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called 
Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Lord, we know that you give us your word, that we might profit from it in season and out. We know that there are treasures within your word, and we come before you this morning and pray for you to open the eyes of our heart to receive the gospel of our King today as it is preached to us in your word. Lord, we ask for the help of your spirit to apply a different type of text to us today and that within we would see the glories and the grace and the gospel of our King. We ask this all in his name. Amen. One of my favorite children's books that we had around our house when the kids were younger is called Are You My Mother? It's the story of a mama bird who lays an egg and then flies off to get a worm for her to-be-born baby bird. But while she's gone, the egg hatches and the bird comes into this world and the bird doesn't know uh, where his mother is. So he falls out of the nest and the story of the book is this little bird trying to find his mother. So he goes up to a cat and he says, are you my mother? The cat says, no, I'm not your mother. And he goes to a dog. Are you my mother? And a cow and a horse. Then it just gets silly. He goes to a car and a train and he looks up at a plane and he asks this plane, are you my mother? Right? The book is sort of searching and we're with this baby bird experiencing sort of despair as he can't find his mother. And at the end, a helping hand brings him back to the nest, and his mother flies up with the worm, and he says, I know you, you're my mother. And they go and sort of live happily ever after at the end of the kid's book. His bird is searching for its mother. And I think there's a sense in which our world is searching for something. It's like that baby bird. Maybe not searching for a mother, maybe searching for a hero, maybe searching for a leader, maybe searching someone to take control and fix what is wrong in the world, or at least fix what is wrong in my life. (laughs) It's why we latch ourselves to sports teams. It's why we love the hero movies. It's why sometimes we idolize politicians, because they promise things that we so desperately want out of our world. We are all searching for for something, a mother, a hero. In the biblical language, we're searching for a king. We just don't know it. We just don't know it. We're looking without, and no one fits the bill. We look within for ourselves to be the hero, ourselves to be the king, and there's nothing there. And into this world, of searching and uncertainty and waiting, Matthew comes with this trumpet blast of an announcement. And he says, here's the king. Here is your king. Israel, here is who you have been searching for and waiting for, for centuries. To a lost and dying world, here is who you are looking for. You just don't know it. 
With this trumpet blast of an opening to the New Testament, Matthew is heralding that the king has arrived and he's beginning his global mission. That's what I want you to see in our genealogy, in our 17 verses this morning, that the king has arrived to begin his global mission. And he has arrived with a trumpet blast and a ticker tape parade and the red carpet rolled out all in a a genealogy. (laughs) All that in a genealogy. I want to show you this morning who this king is and what he has come to do. That he is... The king who has arrived to begin his global mission. And we will see that sort of under three headings this morning. First, I want you to see, pulling out a few verses from our genealogy, that Christ is God's chosen king. It's our first heading. Christ, the Christ, as he's called in the last verse, is God's chosen king. We ended last week, we ended the book of Genesis with the sovereignty of God. With Joseph reflecting on God's sovereign plan in his life, looking backwards, and his sovereign promise, looking forward, that somebody would come to bring his bones out of Egypt, that somebody would come to redeem the people. And we reflected on how God is sovereign in his control of everything, that God sovereignly controls all of world history. He controls the who's and the what's and the how's and the when's of world history. I mean, this text shows us in no uncertain terms that God controls the who of the genealogy of Jesus. The people who are in this list are the very people that God has put there. Despite the fact that most of them have tried to put somebody else in this list. I mean, just think about the, the first couple of verses. I mean, all of, I preached in Genesis for a year. That whole sermon series can be summarized in verses 2 and 3. Right? Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Perez. Right, That's the book of Genesis. God controls the who. But how did Abraham get to Isaac? Well, it didn't happen very fast, did it? There were years and years of barrenness and waiting and infertility. There was the event of Abraham's lying and then unfaithfulness to his wife. The birth of another child to solve the problem of her infertility. Just birth, having a child with another woman. And that child then, Ishmael, putting the chosen child, Isaac, in danger later in his life. Abraham himself being tested on his willingness to sacrifice his own son. That grand story of Abraham's life summarized here as Abraham, the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Well, that was quite a dramatic story, wasn't it? We had another uh, barren woman, another couple struggling with infertility. We had two children born, and we had the threat of the older Esau against the younger. And the father liked the older one better than the younger one, thus putting this very verse in danger by Isaac's own selfishness. And then Jacob, the father of Judah, well, that's quite a story. There's 12 brothers. And the oldest one got left out. The second one, the third born, they're all taken out. Judah's the last one, but, but Judah is a total mess. Judah's the one that wants to sell his youngest brother into slavery. Judah's the one, as we'll see in a little bit, bears a child through his daughter-in-law. From Judah to Perez through Tamar. 
his daughter-in-law. I mean, these are just the first two verses. <laughs> you, you could go on and on. I could go through the whole genealogy like this. There's no classic love story here. Right? There's no perfect plan. They fall in love, they get married, they immediately have great kids, and they live happily ever after. That's nobody's story in Genesis. That's nobody's story in the world. But behind every one of these, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, is a story of grace. Behind every name is the story of God's sovereign grace. You don't realize it because this is so matter-of-fact, boom, boom, boom. But what's going on is he takes broken families and he makes something beautiful out of them. He takes broken marriages and he makes something beautiful out of them. God sovereignly controls every one of these family messes and disasters to bring about his chosen king. And it's not only the who of history that God controls, it's the when of history that God controls. Matthew has arranged this genealogy very intentionally. In fact, if you work your way through it and you run through some genealogies in the Old Testament, you will note there's some names missing. He's been selective in his choice. Some of the names pass from granddad to grandson or great-grandfather to great-grandson. He is being particular in how he is arranging these names. Why is that? Well, he tells us in verse 17. He says, well, there's 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the deportation and then 14 from the deportation to Christ. Now, that he, there's 14 because he sort of arranged it so that there would be 14. Well, what's the big deal about 14, right? Why is Matthew showing us these three sections of 14? There's something very significant in his mind. And quite honestly, it's easily over our head. I mean, there's no obvious answer to that when we first read it. Now, some people say that he does this as a, a memory device. So apparently people are memorizing this genealogy. I don't know if you've ever tried that. <laughs> And if there's three sets of 14, that would help you memorize it. Maybe. Uh, others say there's something significant about 14. And there's actually a connection here that focuses on David with the number 14. That, that the name David in, in Hebrew is, has no vowels and D and V and D are each associated with a number of the alphabet. So D is the fourth number, V is the sixth number, and then D is the wait, sixth, fourth, si- fourth, sixth, fourth. Sorry, I'm trying to do math on the fly. And if you add that up, you get 14. So maybe that 14 is pointing to David. I don't put much stock in stuff like this, but most commentators mention this as a possibility. So who knows? What makes the most sense to me is the idea that Matthew is showing us three distinct phases or periods of time, and they match. They're each the same amount of time. And one author says, picture the letter N, the capital letter N. You can even write it in your notes right now. It goes up with one length, down with one length, and then up again. And that the first 14 generations rise from Abraham to Christ, that the next leg, as it were, the next 14 generations, sorry, maybe hand to David, excuse me, go from David and they descend down into Babylon. And then the final section, the final phase, rises from Babylon and culminates in Christ. 
That God does a work in calling David who is outside of the land and calling the people who are outside of the land in exile. And there's this rise towards David who points us to the rise towards Christ. Frankly, I think this matches the theology of the New Testament. When Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That God has perfectly orchestrated all of time so that at this particular moment, after 14 up, 14 down, and 14 up again, in the fullness of time arrives Christ. That the Father has arranged all of the history of the world to bring about his chosen king to this woman in this place at this time. Now, we are a reformed church, so we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, but we can miss it sometimes. <laughs> Don't miss this incredible truth. Marvel that your God has arranged centuries and centuries of stories and lives and movements and time and governments and places to this moment when Everything is ripe according to his perfect timing and the arrival of Christ. He brings about all of the history of the world to culminate in the arrival of his son. You see, each individual in this story, they had no idea this was coming. Judah and the mess of his life, he had no idea what God was using it for. As Sarah and Rebecca waited for years and years of infertility and confusion and questions, they had no idea that God was using their hardship to bring about the salvation of the world. That for every individual in this list, there's 40 plus individuals, there's heartache and confusion and waiting and pain and lots of sin. That God was using all of that to bring about his chosen king. And Matthew, I think, wants us to marvel at the sovereignty of God in this moment, at this time, in this place. You see, God, Christ, excuse me, is God's chosen king. He is his chosen king, however, for a specific people. So I want you to see, secondly, from this genealogy, that Christ is Israel's promised king. He's God's chosen king. He is also Israel's promised king. There's two names in this text that stand out above everything else. You don't have to have a master's degree in biblical studies to see this, right? David is at the beginning, David's in the middle, and David's in the end. Abraham's at the beginning, Abraham's in the list, Abraham's at the end. Right? David and Abraham are the two most significant names, outside, of course, of Jesus, in this genealogy. And it, it's sort of like the, the pedigree of a racehorse, right? I mean, it's sort of showing us, well, we're going we're gonna to go for that horse there, because if you look at that horse's pedigree, you can see the, the heroes and the victors and the champions sort of in his lineage. 
right? If you, if you ever follow horse racing, right? Secretariat, war admiral, right? These famous horses, if they're in the lineage of that horse in the race, well, then you may want to back that horse. And that's sort of what Matthew's telling us. He's saying, look at these heroes in a sense, but they're not really heroes. Look at these people through whom God works in the genealogy of Jesus. What is significant about Abraham and David? It's not them themselves. They're both kind of a mess. What's significant about Abraham and David is what God promises them. So this is what God promises Abraham. God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in verse one, when Jesus is called the son of Abraham, what does that mean? It means he is the recipient of that promise. It means he is the one who is to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, what is that promise? I should give you a test. I've preached on this for a year in Genesis. It is a people and a place. The way that God promises to bless Abraham is through a people and a place. And so for Jesus to be the son of Abraham, it means, number one, he's got to somehow be associated with a multitude of people. And number two, he is going to lead that multitude of people into the promised place of God. And Jesus, as the son of Abraham, is the heir of that promise. He's the one that Matthew is telling us is going to bring about the promise to Abraham. What about David? Here's God's promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. You're thinking now Solomon, but then he says this. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So somebody is going to come in the lineage of David who is going to sit on the throne forever. Well, it's not Solomon. He dies. It's not the next guy, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. Somebody must come and sit on the throne forever. So to call David, so to call the Christ, the son of David, is to say he is the one who is promised to sit on the throne forever. This is a royal lineage of the coming king. Here's the one who has a claim on the throne. Some of you may have wondered at times, why is the genealogy in Matthew different than the genealogy in Luke? Some of you have never even cared about the genealogies. (laughs) You've never even thought about that. But they're very different. I mean, for one, Matthew starts at the top and goes down. Uh, Luke starts at the bottom, at the arrival, and counts its way back up to, to Adam. But they differ significantly. I mean, Joseph has a different father in the two genealogies. That, that's pretty strange. Uh, there's some theories for that. One theory is that Luke's genealogy is really ge- the genealogy of Mary and not of Joseph. But it never, it never says that. I mean, it explicitly says Joseph, it's actually kind of strange in the time to have the genealogy of a mother. Um, critics of the Bible will just say, well, they're each just making it up, so it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, we, we have to reject that. We know this is God's inspired word. Uh, it seems as you follow Luke's uh, descent and Matthew's as well, they diverge at David. Uh, at, in Matthew's account, the lineage goes through Solomon. In Luke's account, it goes through Nathan, another of his sons. What seems to be is that Luke is tracking the biological descent, whereas Matthew is tracking 
the legal descent, the claim to the throne. So he is going through the lineage of kings in particular to show us that this one who has arrived is not merely related to David somehow. No, he is, but he also has a claim to the throne. He has a claim to God's throne, the throne of God's king. It's why we see the word Christ appear three times in this section. In the first verse, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title, right? Messiah or anointed one. We see that Jesus was, I'm sorry, verse 16. Jesus was born who is called Christ, Messiah. And the last verse to Babylon, I'm sorry, the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. So Abraham is the recipient of a certain set of promises, people in place. David is the recipient of another set of promises, throne, king, everlasting kingdom. Matthew tells us these two different promises are both fulfilled in Christ. He is the son of Abraham and he is the son of David. And in fact, we can go one step further. We can say not only the promises to Abraham and David are fulfilled in Jesus, we can say with Paul, all the promises of God find their yes in him. The promise to Isaac, the promise to Jacob, the promise to Judah, on down the list. Every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ. I mean, kids, imagine this, right? Y'all have probably at this point made your Christmas list, right? Hopefully it's not too long for mom and dad's sake, but you have a list of all the stuff that you want for Christmas. And if you're like me in my childhood, every day I would just add a couple more things and the list just keeps getting longer and longer. Mom just keeps rolling her eyes at me more and more. Now imagine mom and dad could buy you one gift that answered for every item on that list. That'd be a pretty cool toy, wouldn't it? I don't think it exists. What Matthew's telling us is that every single promise of the Old Testament is yes in Jesus. That Jesus doesn't bring us good gifts. He is the good gift. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the law keeper. He is the sin bearer. He is the perfect prophet and priest and king. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He himself is the promised land and the tabernacle and the temple. Every promise in the Old Testament is yes and amen in Christ. But to put it the other way, friends, you're not going to find anything that you want that is promised in God's word anywhere else but in Jesus. The world that is searching for something, anything, will not find it anywhere else but in Christ. There's not some sort of halfway that God answers some of these promises apart from Jesus. No, they're all yes and amen in him. He is Israel's promised King. What's amazing about this genealogy is it doesn't stop with Israel. Because thirdly and finally, we see Christ is the world's redeeming king. He is the world's redeeming king. There used to be this segment on Sesame Street when I was a kid called One of These Things is Not Like the Other. 
Right? They'd show three red objects and a blue object. And you were supposed to say, well, the blue one's not like the red ones. Or they'd show three numbers and one letter. Right? And you'd recognize the one that's not like the other. And you would learn, kids would learn their colors and their letters by identifying what was different. So we can actually look at this genealogy and say, one of these things is not like the other. Or some of these things don't fit. Let me show you some things that don't fit. The easiest one that jumps out is that this lineage includes bad people. (laughs) This lineage includes a lot of bad people. I mean, just look at the list of kings. You don't need to know who all these are and what they did, uh, but there's some really bad kings in here. If you are familiar with Ahaz, he was a bad king, a very bad king. And yet there he is, right there in the list and lineage of Jesus. One wonders, if Matthew was selective, if he chose who to include and not include, why did he include a bunch of bad people? The answer to that is because there's no one else to choose from. (laughs) There's no one else to choose from, right? If Jesus is really going to come incarnate in human flesh, he must be in the lineage of bad people. He must come to sinners. What else is not like the other? Well, secondly, this lineage includes women. This is weird. For an ancient Near Eastern genealogy, they usually would not include women. And yet here we have five women named in the genealogy. Uh, the first woman named is Tamar. Again, this is Judah's daughter-in-law who resorted to prostitution in order to get what she was owed by her father-in-law and her family. Rahab. Rahab's the Rahab you're thinking of in Joshua, the prostitute who helped the spies uh, get out. Ruth. uh, You know Ruth from the book that bears her name. Uh, Verse 6, the wife of Uriah. She's not even named. I'm not sure why she's not named. You know her name. It's Bathsheba. Uh, She uh, is guilty of or is forced to uh, commit adultery with King David as he takes her and puts her husband, Uriah, to death. And so not only are women named, but it's an interesting pattern with these women, isn't it? Prostitution and adultery. I mean, why is Sarah not in this list or Rebecca or Rachel, sort of the honored matriarchs? Of Israel. Why are they not in the list? Why did Matthew include these women? I think if you look at them, one thing that stands out is there is scandal surrounding their motherhood in some way or the other, right? There's some form of scandal. There's not really a scandal in Ruth, but there's sort of this, this, this question and this need for the Redeemer and the husband and the, the motherhood. And I think that all points to Mary. The scandal of the virgin birth. The scandal of this young woman without a husband. It is sort of almost preparing the reader for the the virgin birth to come. But even more than that, these are undervalued women who have been sinned against by the very men listed in the genealogy who are elevated and honored by the grace and mercy of God. In no other religion, in no other genealogy of the day would you find women, but in the genealogy of Christ. 
And if it's bad enough that they're women, sarcasm, (laughs) it's even worse that they're Gentiles. And that's the third thing that's not like the other in this text, is that the lineage includes Gentiles. Most of, if not all of these women, there's a question about one, are Gentiles. What in the world are Gentiles doing in the lineage of the Jewish king? Jesus clearly fails the purity test, right? And if we're going back to that racehorse analogy, he's, he's not a, a thoroughbred. He's not a purebred, right? He, he, he is not of perfect stock. He is of mixed blood, mixed race even. Why is that? Well, I, I think it hints at the mission of Jesus, the universal mission of Jesus. He's not come only for Israel. He's come to Israel that through Israel, the blessing might go to the very ends of the earth. That even Gentiles will come to the table of salvation. What do all of these things that are not like the other tell us? They tell us this glorious truth. Jesus has come for sinners. Jesus has come for sinners. Imagine if this list was just the royal and just the righteous and just the pure and only the strong. Then you would look at that list and you'd think there's no place for me. There's no place for me in this kingdom. Are you an outsider? Are you a foreigner? Do you not feel like you belong? Matthew says, look at the genealogy of your Savior. There's a place for you here. Are you poor? Are you needy? Are you powerless? Have you been sinned against in grievous ways? Matthew says, there's There's a place for you here. Are you a doubter, a liar, a schemer, a cheater, a murderer, an adulterer? Well, there's a place for you here too. Christ makes room for you in his family and in his kingdom, and he is yours. By grace alone today, not by your lineage or your heritage or the faith of mom and dad. He is yours by your faith alone. Matthew blasts the trumpet announcement of the king. And as that blast fades away, the question remains, is he your king? He's God's chosen king. He's Israel's promised king. He's the world's redeeming king. But friends, is he your king? Receive him by faith today. Believe in his death and his resurrection. Trust in his power to save. And you are welcome to live at peace in his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. King Jesus, we praise you today for who you are and what you have come to do. We marvel at the working of our sovereign God. We are humbled at the promises of Israel are true in Christ, and we rejoice that this salvation is broadcast to the world, that sinners like us may come and find a place in your kingdom. King Jesus, reign in our hearts, reign in our families and our church and our world. Unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.